This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman, and welcome to The Loop. There's a new web interactive up on CBC Online. It's called Black on the Prairies. It takes a look at the experience of Black people in Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. And it was co-led by Ifi Chiwetalu and Omaira Issa. They're two passionate voices at CBC who really wanted to explore what it means now and what it's actually meant to be a Black person in this part of the country. The site launched on Monday, and I, I swear, I think I spent like hours going through it because there's so many stories, sound pieces, and even some of the statistics of Black communities and experiences here in Alberta. It is so much more vast than I knew. And it comes at a really important moment in our city of recognizing racist attacks and calling for change. So this week on The Loop, I wanted to dive into that experience with you, speaking with some of the CBC Edmonton journalists involved. Well, she has a story as part of the Black on the Prairies project, Tandiwe Kangwavi is also a reporter with us here at CBC Edmonton. And this week, she covered the story of a young man CBC is calling Pazzo, a Black teen violently beaten by several boys outside of his school. Tandy, thank you so much for joining us on The Loop. Thanks, Claire, for having me. I mean, this story really did capture the city's attention in so many ways this week. Can you tell me what happened? So he's in grade eight and he was swarmed and beaten outside Roslyn School in North Edmonton by a group of boys. It was on Friday, April 16th, and that attack was filmed and posted to social media. The actual beginning of all of this, though, it happened last November when he said he was threatened by a student at that school. And then that student was expelled. And according to Pazzo, his friends wanted to retaliate against him. On that Friday, of course, how did everything start? Pazzo had missed his bus and he was walking into a field uh, just to catch another bus and then he sees a bunch of boys, some of them not from his school, and he just tries to run and then one of them catches up and holds him and they all start attacking him and this is where that horrible video starts. Yeah, that video was shared so widely over the last week. What do we actually see in it? What does the video show? So it's very disturbing. In the video, he swarmed about seven kids, take turns punching him, kicking him. One person in a white hoodie puts him in a chokehold, dragging him, slamming him to the ground. Someone could be heard calling him the N-word. And Pazzo said that and then the taunts that they were calling him a monkey, it made him afraid to wear his own skin. He actually said that. I felt afraid to wear my own skin. And in that moment, while he was being attacked, he said he was just trying not to feel the pain by closing his eyes. And he actually lost consciousness after the attack. It's so upsetting to think of that. I mean, he's in grade eight. How did you feel after you saw the video? When I first saw the video circulating in some of my circles, I didn't want to look at it at all. Um, I wasn't working when my mom actually brought it to my attention. By the time, you know, I had seen this video, it was a week later after the actual incident. Knowing I would be working the next day, I was kind of keeping an eye on our own shop. By the time I got in, I realized that the chase was still 
going on. And there were some questions around whether we could actually call it a racist attack, even though the boy himself had shared his testimony about what they were saying and what they were doing, making monkey sounds. And so I had to listen to the video just to determine for our own journalistic credibility, whether there was evidence that this was a racist incident or had anything to do with race. And I did hear someone calling him the N-word in that video and the noises, they were kind of hard to determine, you know, if they were monkey noises or taunts. It was really disturbing. It was really difficult for me. Just that kind of hatred, that kind of callousness, that kind of violence, it kind of just hits you. It almost goes into your bones and it's just hard to kind of shake that kind of feeling. You know, anybody who's experienced like a racist attack or even bullying or anything like that, I'm sure they would know the kind of trauma that comes with, you know, seeing something like that, which is why we also had to blur the video. We don't want to purposely traumatize anybody else. We also had to bring down some of that audio, especially when a racial slur is being used. But I did think it was important to share just to make people aware of what did happen in our own city. A lot of people were surprised, you know, that this is in Edmonton. A lot of stories have been coming out since then. People are starting to, you know, pay attention. Well, and as you know, we kind of touched on this has started conversations across the city. What did you hear about the community reacting to this event? There was immediate outrage even before we published our story. Members of various community groups, including African community leaders, they went to the police Northeast Division. They were demanding, why haven't charges been laid? Why is this family, you know, not getting any answers from the school, from the police? So there was a lot of outrage and a lot of calls uh, for action. And then you, you started to see this whole outpouring of support from the community as well, which was a huge positive outcome of this. Also, Pazzo has had his own message of encouragement to other black students he said don't hold your story down bring it up so he's really inspiring I think a lot of people to to take action to speak out against this kind of racism in schools we're sitting here it's Wednesday we do know that after the family did go to the police what has come of that what have we heard in terms of the response on the institutional level We did speak with the police, the Edmonton police on Saturday, and they said that they were investigating. The police haven't released more information about their investigation and where it's at, but the school boards have issued statements after getting a lot of criticism saying that they've forwarded their the names of the students involved to police so that's the public school board and also the catholic school board and they will be recommending expulsion for these students that's where we are now i know the family uh, was saying that they would like to see the attackers face criminal charges the story is Certainly far from over. And I mean, we can't ignore that this story comes out at the same time as Black on the Prairies, a project with deals with racism and othering in our communities, but is also such a celebration of Black diversity and culture 
here in Alberta. Uh, what did it mean to you to be a part of this collection and sharing stories and experiences of Black Albertans? Oh, it was such an honor for me to be a part of this project. The Black on the Prairies project is such a celebration of Black diversity and culture. And part of racism, part of all of this prejudice is people just really don't know about the history of Black people here, their contributions here, how much that Black communities bring to the prairies and have brought for actually centuries. A lot of people don't even know that Black people have been in this part of the country for that long. So it was really exciting to be a part of this. Yeah. And I mean, the prairies, we have like 15% of the Black population of Canada, and most of that lives here in Alberta. Your piece specifically looks at the racial divide in prairie Christian churches. I'd love to know what drew you to that story. The story of the church, it really reflects the Black experience well in general in the prairies over the years because, you know, you have prairie churches, Black churches being founded on the prairies over a hundred years ago. And many people don't even know that these Black churches ever existed here. They had to start Black churches because they were not welcome in the white churches. Not only, you know, do we have the Black population that's been here for generations, but we also have the newcomers. Myself, I came to, to the prairies in 2010 from Toronto. It was really interesting just to track the way that this this new wave, I guess, you know, of the Black population being here, how it would impact the churches. And, you know, I also was able to introduce a lot of other interesting characters like Rebecca Johnson. She she arrived in Edmonton around the same time that I did, but she also faced like this terrible racist experience when she moved here, when she went to the West Edmonton Mall. You know, and a woman used the N-word at her. But now she's she's going to this church where she's promoting, you know, racial uh, diversity in the church. And it's just so inspiring to see these young Black women, like, just trying to, trying to, you know, foster diversity in their churches. When the Black people felt rejected, they just... They just went and worshipped and danced, and they were be they was able they were able to be free in the presence of the Lord. And I feel like the church has always represented community, and it's and it's failed sometimes of uh, you know as representing community. But that's what God made it for for us to commune with Him, but as a body. It just seems like you know from the story and some feedback I've also received that yeah we are pretty much uh, fellowshipping and worshipping according to race and ethnicity lines still in on the prairies and it and it's actually more it's more pronounced than in other places like in across North America here but it is it is a trend that that's um, seen in other places around the world too in other centers as well. One of the features that makes Black on the Prairie special is the way that it incorporates real voices and stories of folks, not just stories about them or their experiences. And one of the pieces is reflections on Black Prairie life. The audio collection explores topics like migration and identity, community. There are 15 voices in it, 15 really unique stories from artists and organizers, parents who 
all relate to living in this part of the country in a really different way. It showcases and celebrates the diversity within the Black experience on the prairies. And here in Alberta, that range of experiences and stories is really massive. I mean, the the vast majority of Black people on the prairies live here in our province. And within that, 30% of Black Albertans are third generation or more. So being Black on the prairies has a thousand meanings. You know, for all of my abiding love of of the snow and of my various communities that I belong to as a child, um, you know, I did feel a little bit deracinated in a sense. And I think that this played into it, this idea of not having a a larger sense of, of a black presence or black history, you know, in the province that I was growing up in. You felt almost as though... Perhaps you shouldn't be there. You know, that's the that's the sense you get, or that there's no sort of um, precedent for you, and, and therefore you feel maybe a little bit out of place. My name is Jesse Lipscomb. I'm currently residing in Edmonton. Alberta is home for me. I've lived here all of my life, but also I am a fourth generation Albertan. My people come from Amber Valley. Hundreds of black Oklahomans migrated to the prairies beginning in 1909, not only to Saskatchewan, but also to Alberta, where they created entire black communities like Amber Valley. Uh, Just blocks from my house is Shiloh Baptist Church. Um, And Shiloh Baptist Church was created by those who were settling in Amber Valley when they came here and wanted to find a place of worship and they weren't allowed, so they created their own. So every time I drive by Shiloh Baptist, I'm reminded of the Amber Valley family and peoples and everything they did. And that allows me to feel connected to Edmonton because I often don't feel connected to Alberta, to Canada. I think I feel most connected to Edmonton when I think about my family because we've been here over a hundred years and I have <laughs> over a hundred people in my family. Growing up, I really I really wasn't told a lot about what Amber Valley really is, the migration. I didn't find that out till I was older. But what I did know about the group is my parents, it seemed we knew everybody because they all homesteaded. Everywhere we went, we knew somebody. How do you know this person? How do you know this person? How do we know them? And that was a unique thing for me in that um, relation to the prairies, even though I really wasn't um, sure what that meant when I was younger. My sense of the Black presence in Alberta was that it was something much more recent. You know, the advent was like in the 60s, and, and that was sort of the earliest idea of Black settlement. And so it wasn't until I was much older, um, in fact, in graduate school, I just remember taking out a book from the the library about you know, the history of Alberta and coming across these photos of people, you know, who were homesteading, who were clearly of African descent and, you know, had been there since sort of the late 1800s. And I was completely shocked by this. It, it just blew my mind. There is um, already a rich history and culture of Black life in the prairies. I, it, I just kind of learned this some months ago, but communities in Saskatchewan, Shiloh, Maidstone, names that I know of because there are communities with those names in Jamaica. Black people were here long before, mm-hmm. hundreds of years before. That was an excerpt from Reflections on Black Prairie Life. That piece was produced by Melissa Fundira and Ifi Chiwetalu and mixed by Chris Haynes. 
The voices you heard were Essie Adujan, Jesse Lipscomb, Pamela Parker, Yolanda Saunders, and Sheena Brown. The audio collection can be found in full, and I highly recommend you listen to it, along with all the rest of the Black on the Prairies project at cbc.ca slash blackontheprairies. Small towns and communities in Alberta offer a different slice of life. They're often described as tight-knit, with their own unique identities. But the experience of growing up in a small town has some similarities, especially if you are one of the few or only Black people there. CBC reporter Tahara Faruzan joins us now on The Loop. Morning. Good morning. How did you find this story? Um, It was kind of a surprising experience. I was out on the field uh, covering a BLM protest in uh, Calgary, And I uh, walked up to this young man uh, just, you know, wanting to see why he came out, where he was from. And he said he was from High River. And I was just shocked, this young black man from High River. And it struck me because I was born in High River, you know, and I grew up in the Okotoks area, so just south of Calgary, And I was, you know, the only black person there other than my immediate family for a long time. So to meet this young man, uh, let's say a decade later, to make (laughs) myself sound a bit younger, uh, saying that he's from High River was just an absolute shock to me. It was unexpected. Yeah. What was your experience growing up in High River and Okotoks? Um, Well, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful place. And even as a young girl, I always knew I grew up in the most beautiful place with these jutting mountains in the background. No, no not to like, you know, <laughs> bad mouth Edmonton. That's fine. They're just a little further away. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I always had that feeling. And I'm definitely, you know, a small town girl at heart. I was very shy. And... You know, I loved growing up there, but I was very lonely. It was a very lonely experience. There wasn't any other people like me for a very long time. And so I, you know, got, I was very used to occupying white spaces and being treated in certain ways that I didn't fully understand until I became a bit older. And so even though I loved growing up there and I made amazing friends, of course, there was always this underlying, like, you're from there, but you're not really accepted there, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was kind of a mix. It's this mix of, like, this is my home and this is where I'm from. And when I go back, it's like, oh, wheat fields and mountains. This is, like, (laughs) this is me. But then you get people who stare at you or, you know, follow you in the store or say, where are you really from? And you're like, I'm from here. (laughs) And so, it, it, yeah, it was kind of a mix of a mix of emotions. But but I love home. (laughs) And well, and then it leads to this encounter when you're covering a, a BLM protest and you meet this person who you have this connection with and it turned into this cool story. I mean. What are the stories of Baptist and David? Can you kind of take me into what you wrote? Well, like I said, when I met him at the protest, I was shocked. But I knew that he had a story. 
and it was so surprising to me too because I it was like meeting somebody who you knew had a very similar experience as you but you ha- didn't really have that chance to talk because of course there's this like big <laughs> protest going on right you're there for a different reason exactly <laughs> so months later um, the block on the prairies project came up and I hadn't actually talked to Baptist in a long time but I knew he had a story. And so I pitched him for the project and I contacted him. And we just talked about, you know, what it was like growing up there. And I don't know if it comes across in the story, but Baptist is a funny guy. He's funny. He's (laughs) laid back. He's relaxed. He's just, you know, he's very comfortable in his own skin and he's extremely outgoing. And then when I talked about, you know, his friendships there and he brought up David And um, then I pre-interviewed David, and David's the complete opposite. He's, like, more (laughs) reserved. He's a little bit more serious. And they just had this beautiful friendship that I honestly kind of just stumbled on because I knew Baptist had a story, but I didn't know about this bond that he had with his friend. It was so – like, there's nothing else – No other way for me to describe it other than this is so beautiful. These two young men that find, you know, comfort knowing that they have the support of each other. I just, yeah, I just, I fell for it. It was great. (laughs) Well, I loved it. And I mean, it's this idea of two people with such different kind of histories and backgrounds in very different places finding each other in, I don't want to say the unlikeliest of places, but small town Alberta. How did they come to live in their respective communities? Well, Baptist's family... They uh, had fled Sudan. He was born in Egypt. They eventually came to Canada. They came to Calgary first, and Calgary does have a very strong, large Sudanese community. So they kind of gravitated there. Um, But there is a large Cargill plant, processing plant just outside of High River. That's where his dad ended up getting a job. And so the family moved to High River for, for that work. And similar with David, you know, his he was born in Toronto, his family's from Dominica, and they eventually moved to Calgary for work, but the housing in Okotoks was cheaper, so their family moved out there. And so it seems like it would be this random, you know, union of these two yeah. black men, but in reality, it's so it's so familiar and it's so honest because so many people have had that very similar experience where, you know, the economy ebbs and flows and you end up in these areas of the country that maybe you didn't think you would. (laughs) (laughs) What did they tell you about their, I mean, I'm going to use the term love story. I know it's brotherly love, but it is, you know, this lovely kind of two folks (laughs) finding each other. What did they tell you about their experiences and, and how that brought them together and created that really amazing connection between two people? Yeah, they kind of stumbled on each other through sport, which is so great because, you know, so many kids play sports. Uh, Baptist was really into hockey. David was more into football. And then they met through track and field. And, you know, it's these kids that are going out and, and you send your kids to sports so that they, you know, learn how to be, you know, team members and make friends and yeah. all that good stuff. And and it's honest. And that's that's kind of how they met. But knowing that they had a very similar experience in a very in two very lonely places really brought them together uh later on in life when they were a little bit older so they were able to share 
you know, the difficulties that they have. And both of them really told me that it wasn't that they couldn't talk to their other friends. It wasn't that they didn't have other friends that didn't accept them because they had very strong bonds with other people in the community as you would. But there were some things that that they told me that they felt they couldn't talk about with other people, but they found that they could talk amongst themselves and really have that deeper loving level of understanding and love. And, and that level of understanding, you know, grew a relationship that, you know, from the sounds of it, from what they told me, from the way they act around each other, it's, it's like brotherly. Yeah. It's, it's family. And their families are close. They are close. And so it's it's just this, yeah, beautiful bond, <laughs> brotherly love. <laughs> it, it's that shared understanding, right, that builds mm-hmm. such a connection that, you know, sometimes you can't find in other places or with people who don't have those same feelings or experiences or knowledge. Mm-hmm. With all of the challenges that they've experienced and living in small towns and, and living as black men in Alberta, you know, do they see a future in these places? They're still living in High River and Okotoks. Do they feel that belonging? Or are they looking for it elsewhere? David really, because uh, he's living in Okotoks, and he said he has hope that things are changing. And you have to understand that Okotoks, even though it is a larger place now, it was a smaller town before. And so now it is growing bigger because it is closer to Calgary. It is cheaper. Right. And, well, maybe not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But people gravitate towards it because it's a a little bit quieter. And so a lot of different people are coming into town and are establishing themselves there. And so David really relayed that to me and said, you know, things are changing. And he did have hope for the future. And that was really great because... You know, a lot of people, I think, go to small towns. They live there because they they have to. They have some bonds, but yeah. their their eyes are kind of set elsewhere. But he he has hope for for the town, for the area. Um, Baptist, he is setting his eyes on you know either Calgary or Toronto, which is understandable. It's a very understandable thing because what he told me is you know he wants a place where he belongs where he doesn't have to explain who he is, where there's just this unsaid sense of relationship. And who could blame anybody for wanting yeah. that? And it, I mean, it speaks to this. The Black on the Prairies Project is this umbrella within all of these different identities and experiences and perspectives and takes on Black life in the prairies. Telling this story as part of that larger project, what did that mean to you? I don't even know if I could put it in words, but... It was an absolute honor to tell their story because I knew it was so, it was unique, but so relatable. Like, even if you're not a person of color or black, there's a level of understanding there that you would have, you know, and it is a part of our broader history. And the Black on the Prairies Project, you know, like, Ify and Amira, like they've done just such a great job because it's it's a part of history that we all need to know and we all need to understand. And that's kind of done and, and started with this project. Not that it didn't exist before, but I just think like having all these stories in one place where people can go to and and learn 
is great. And I mean, I've learned so much from the project. There's so many things that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I wish I had known as a young person. And yeah, so to be able to contribute to that is, it's amazing. Yeah, I've just felt honored. <laughs> The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton, and our team is Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, Christina Silva, and James Evans. And CBC's Black on the Prairies project was co-led by Omira Issa and Ifi Chiwetalu. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnyman. And a really special thank you this week to Luke Williams. He's the really patient guy who transcribes our episodes every week. So thank you, Luke. And if you do want to read The Loop or if you know someone who would find a transcription of the episodes helpful, you can find them linked to the episode stories at cbc.ca slash Edmonton. Thank you so much for listening because there's always more to know. So you can get into The Loop with us every Friday. We're always looking for feedback. So leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen. We also have an email, theloop at cbc.ca. And thank you to everyone who emailed last week for your chance at a tote bag and a mug. Uh, You know, you told us how you're living life a little greener. I'm absolutely stealing your ideas. And you can always keep listening for more opportunities to win some swag, because I cannot be the only person walking around Edmonton with the loop on a tote bag. Use the hashtag theloopcbc on social media and subscribe and download the show on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.